0: org, Hardcore episode 161. Steve Schmee here in the Mobster. How's it going, man?
1: It's good. It's wet. It's horrible, but we're busy. And we're smashing them as always for
0: evolutionary.
1: Let's get on with it.
0: Our series continues, guys. This time we're doing an East European bodybuilder, perhaps the best European body, East European bodybuilder of his yeah. era. And who are we doing today, Mobster? Pavel Jablonicki. So, yes, Pavel, one of the best Czech professional bodybuilders of all time. Peak, he was five foot eight, ripped 240 pounds. You guys can go online and look at this guy's pictures. Currently lives in the Czech Republic and he was born in 1963. His nickname was, I believe it's pronounced Zablo.
1: Yeah, I think it,
0: it's Zablo. Yeah. Zablo, they started Zablo. So it's D Z A B L O. So I think his nickname was Zablo. So that's a cool nickname, by the way. So early yeah. life, guys, guys and gals, he grew up a huge fan of another East European bodybuilder named Libor Menarik. Yeah. And yeah. he was a legendary Czech bodybuilder. He started working out in the city of. Rated Krelov, which has a population of 100,000. And he worked out in a small room that was connected to a large soccer stadium, or as you call it, mobster over there, football. Because that's pretty much, that's their sport over there. He also started working as a mechanic in that same area, fixing airplanes as his first real job. So like his father and uncles, he had a gift for bodybuilding. And he was able to put on a lot of muscle during his first few years of resistance training. But here's the interesting thing, is he didn't work out at a gym. There were no gyms. He would actually work out at work. And he didn't have access to the modern equipment that his peers did in some of the more wealthier countries. So he would use pieces of iron laying around at the airport. To stimulate his muscles and what he would do is before he would go to work, he would start work. He'd be working out at 430 in the morning in the cold in the snow, in the dark before the airport opened. And even after work, all his co workers would go out drinking, go out partying after work, and he would go back to weight training again so he had incredible dedication to it. And he would do what he had to do to stimulate those muscles. So that's a really fascinating thing.
1: I'm gonna get into in a moment following Steve with the whole idea, specifically the Eastern European. We've seen it in Russian gyms of the training with scrap iron, training with rocks. So when we get into the training, Steve, I'm gonna specifically address the fact that you do not need fancy equipment to develop a world-class physique, even allowing for Pavel's genetics. So, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, guys. Uh, without getting into specifics of training, because I don't think, that you know, podcast to podcast, we're going to come across someone who's trying something completely different. What you are looking at here is that, you know, some of us listeners, some of the guys that do this podcast will tell you just how basic we've had it. I mean, my first pieces of training equipment in the house was a flat bench, a bar and 90 kilograms, 198 pounds of weight. And that was it. There was no dumbbells, nothing. I think I might have ended up with a pair of what they used to call iron boots. This guy, and you can find his videos on YouTube with training with essentially scrap iron. So there are videos on YouTube where you'll see these Russian gyms and they're in parks and everything kind of painted blue or or one color or whatever else. You can see it's all welded together. The, The barbells are chained to the bench so they don't get stolen. and. There are videos where there's, there's whole crews, men and women. You can see that maybe a couple of them do gymnastics or something like that, and they're having crazy workouts. on what is it says? Scrap iron welded together pieces of metal, chains and and wheels. You've got other ones, I think, with uh, Africans training on the dirt floor, Brazilians as well, and, and another one. And, and they're using like, cogs and, and gear wheels, And It's all like, sort of screwed and, and welded onto bars and stuff like that. Uh, things with buckets full up with cement. I've seen guys making cement plates during COVID because the, this, the cast iron and steel plates and competition plates have gone up to 8 pounds a kilo over here, which was just crazy when it's normally like 2 pounds hand. So it, it proves 100%, especially when it comes to maintaining muscle for your average guy with normal kind of genetics, but even just for a foundation for everybody, that you do not need chrome and fern and hammer strength and pendulum squat machines and whatever else. Steve and I would tell you this 100%, right? Every single one of those, two, if we win the lotto tomorrow, trust me, my gym's probably gonna be twice the size, four times the amount of equipment. And there will be some fancy shit in there. But, but for years, even in the space that I've got now, I have did nothing more for the last, until I think two years ago, when I started building up my equipment, a power rack, uh, uh, an incline, decline bench, a barbell and some weight, Steve. For a longest time, maybe some grippers and some grip toys. That was it. There was no machines in there, and and I was I was. That's when I was winning my competitions. I came here and the last big competition, two thousand and twelve, with the most basic of equipment, Steve. There was uh, nothing, you know, just deadlifts and benches and grip stuff. That was it. There was nothing else going on. So you you don't need fancy equipment. And here's another thing again. And it sounds like the sort of stories our fathers tell you when they say about. You know, going to, going to school and it was six feet of snow and it was up it was both ways and all that kind of bullshit. But this guy was training and getting his shit done at half past four in the morning and after the guys had gone home, an hour before work, so starting work at half five, training at half four. Bill Pearl, legendary for training at four or five o'clock in the morning. Sergio Olivia doing a 10-hour shift at the steel mill and then doing a three-hour workout. It was high volume and, and crazy, crazy stuff and something else i touched on with steve as well this is the thing um working in the aircraft industry is surprisingly hard now you need to be highly qualified the uh, technical stuff is especially but the number one thing that they're crazy on is health and safety they cut they count the nuts and bolts out they count the nuts and bolts when they put them back in so as a young man because he was in his teens when he was doing this stuff he was lucky to get a job where he was it's highly paid especially now and in in a city of only a hundred thousand It's a very, very good job to have. So, you know, not all bodybuilders doing crappy jobs, working in subways and whatever else, or working in gyms. He had none of that stuff. A good job, a hard job, a technical job, and then doing this workouts before and after. One of the great advantages, which Steve's already touched on, is the genetics. 100% of genetics in here. When you've got your dad and your uncles have got good physiques just from whatever they're doing, he does have that advantage. But really, for the rest of the stuff that he was doing, there was no great advantage there. If he lived perhaps in Russia and may have been recognized as an athlete, perhaps it would have been better, but not so much in the Czech Republic. Anyway,
0: back to you, Steve. So Pavel started in 1987, racking up wins, early 20s. He won championship of Czechoslovakia, championship of Europe, world championship under 90 kilos. 1998, 1988, I'm sorry, he again won the world championship, but he competed in the heavyweight division. So that was a harder one for him to win. He would go on to compete until 2006 into his 40s. So Mr. Olympia finishes, the highest placing he had was 11th place, which is extremely impressive. 1989, he got 16th place. In 91, he did not place. 95, he got 16th. 99, he got 14th. 2001, 19th, and 2004 was the highest Was when he got the 11th. Some of his biggest wins over the course of 20 years. 1987, he won the IFBB European Amateur Championship, and he won the World Amateur Championships. The next year, he won again the World Amateur Championships in the heavyweight division. 1999, the the, uh, Toronto Pro. 2003, the Grand Prix of Hungary. And then the 04, he won the Hungarian Pro Inventational. So he's got some major wins under his belt six, and he's got some top tier Mr. Olympia finishes. So anytime you're even up there and you're you place that is impressive. And 11th place, that's that's incredible. So he you know, he, he was a definitely a steady bodybuilder, and he's definitely have a lot. To show for himself, so you guys can go on to social media. He's got an Instagram page, not many followers on there. He doesn't have much on there. No. I just checked it again this morning. It's mostly pictures of himself, you know, him training in a gym, stuff like that. Um, but you can tell from his pictures, my gosh, ripped. I mean, as low as three, four percent body fat at his peak. Yeah. And he also has a offer to coach, and you can check out his website which is com, And then he also has investments over in East Europe as well in some gyms.
1: One of the things I was going to say here, Steve, is if, if, if you look, guys go online and you check him out, you're talking about, I mean, Steve's actually touched on this. We talks about his competition places. Up 90 kilos is 198 pounds, as I mentioned earlier. And at his peak, it was 240 pounds. So literally what you're looking at here is going from uh, essentially a light heavy, to a a, a heavy or open-class bodybuilder over that period of time. And we're talking about a 42-pound difference, and that's just from the beginning of his peak of his career to the very end of his career. So there is that, that 42-pound difference. You you are a heavy. You are an open-class bodybuilder. I believe it depends what country you live in, whether it's 90 or 100 kilos, but he's over 100 kilos. That's 220 pounds. He's finishing at 240 pounds. He's well past being a heavyweight. The other thing was, and Steve's already touched on this again already, of course, world-class conditioning. When you look at that percentage, now, there's always arguments about just how lean people are, whether it's visceral or whatever else. Everybody agrees, and then perhaps it was an indication of the time with regards to Andreas, Andreas Mützer, etc., competing around at that time, and everybody being super ripped. And the arguments about 90s bodybuilders being super ripped, or at least drier and less full perhaps, in the condition that we see now, because, of course, the way that people judge changes. But there's no argument here. Everybody that's done a comment or a YouTube video or a magazine article or anything online says, Java was ripped, Pavel was ripped. He, he was in condition. Now, of course, what you end up doing is putting him up against other guys that are world-class that are also in condition. But something Steve's mentioned in other podcasts before also holds here again. You are top 20 in the fucking world. And everybody's saying that you've got great condition. That's pretty much a good place to be. Now, obviously, the only thing that's going to go against him is perhaps not quite the right shape, not quite the right look, not quite the winning physique that's going to place you on the Olympia stage. But in Eastern Europe, he was kicking ass. He was kicking ass in his early 20s. He was kicking ass in his 30s. He was kicking ass almost up until his 40s. Uh, so it's, it's certainly in his country, El Numero Una, in Eastern Europe, right up there, top three all the time. And even on the tours, this is something we've touched on before, where holding your condition, or even better, becoming more conditioned as you do a tour, shows you. And one of the things that's not actually clear here, Steve, is you look at some of these things and you go, oh, it, it's such and such a competition, he didn't win. He was quite often second or third in those competitions. And again, that's that's really, really good. You look at the guys now, it's very, very difficult. And even, even back in the 2000s, 2010s, when the tours were still taking place, very few people over the years that the tours did take place were able to hold their condition or improve their condition during the tour. So that's a very good indication of the high quality that he had as a bodybuilder. As I said, it's just one of those things we didn't quite have the right shape or the right aesthetics to be in Mr. Olympia, but pretty much. I mean, now, one of the things I did for the pre-show research, he he did a uh, posing on stage, he would have been, let me think now, three years ago, so he'd have been 55 on stage with a physique that many of us, myself included, would be quite proud of, shirt off, on stage, flexing, still getting the cheese, et cetera. And he does a piece to the audience, unfortunately, in Czechoslovakian, so I can't tell you what he said. And unfortunately, some of his other interviews are like that, which is a damn shame there's not a lot of English interviews or English written interviews out there to, to, so we can find out even more about him, find out what kind how his mindset was and find out, how, you know, how he got into, in, into being that kind of shape. So obviously what we're doing here is going to be based on our guesswork and whatever else. But regardless, when you've got peers, when you've got reviews, when you've got you know, throwback videos, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody says this guy was lean.
0: He was in shape. There's no denying it. No one's putting a knock on him. In fact, to. So I'll get into the diet a little bit. Mobster, um, you can tell us about his training and also some fun facts about him. But I'll mention one of the fun facts right now is that even when he visits America, he, st- he doesn't eat hamburgers. That's like the big thing with Americans is hamburgers. Mm. You go you know McDonald's or Burger King, whatever we have here. I know Burger King is actually based over there on your side of the ocean, mopser But you know we have a lot of fast food establishments. That's a big thing is, is burgers. So he won't even eat a burger when he visits America because he says he doesn't want to eat the bread. So he's so strict about his diet, even to this day as a retired bodybuilder, he doesn't consume anything unhealthy. So he's had discipline ever since he was a teenager. And I tell you know parents all the time. I work with a lot of clients. You know they. Their, you know, their dads, their moms, whatever, and you know, I tell them this. I say you have to teach your kids about nutrition from when they're young because if you teach it when they're young, when they get older, they'll understand. When I was a teenager, I was involved in a lot of sports. I knew if I ate shitty, if I ate ice cream, if I ate, drank soda, drank that crap, I'd feel like crap. And then after school, when we'd have practice or we'd have a game, I knew my performance would not be good. So I understood to avoid that crappy food from a young age. I had to learn this stuff on my own. But also my parents they didn't feed me restaurant food. My parents didn't feed me fast food very often. We would eat it once in a while, but it wasn't an everyday thing. So I was lucky in that regard. But a lot of people, they're not. So if you're a parent and you're always you know, you've got your job and you've got this, you got that. And you're like, I don't have time to cook a healthy meal at home. I'd rather just go get fast food every day. You're teaching your kids that, and they'll take that into adulthood. So in his situation as a teenager, he was disciplined because he knew he had to be disciplined. He knew he had to consume muscle building foods. and He had to avoid crap foods. Otherwise he would gain a lot of fat. So he knew that now as an adult, look what it translates. So mobster, tell us a little bit more about that and training and some more fast fast facts about them.
1: Right, so number one, guys, there was no food prep back in those days. And if you've got the disposable income to do a gear cycle, you've probably got the disposable income, I would hope you have. And in fact, I'd probably put the food first anyway to get food prep. If you're that damn lazy that you can't be bothered to pre-prepare food for a week, two hours on a Sunday afternoon, for example, get up early or in the morning, perhaps, before you go out and enjoy some family time, or just chill out with your buddies or whatever else, get up and cook some chicken breast, get up and cook some bags of rice, get the stuff done, there's no excuse. It's it's just bullshit. And then there's a million videos on YouTube, five minute videos, how to cook the perfect egg. You know, guys are doing their, I know guys online, the grip grip competitors of mine back in the day that smoked their own pork. So come on, don't talk to me about, you can't do this. You've got the time. You really have got the time. And, And honestly, you can do, crazy things in terms of like 20 chicken breasts or whatever else in 20 minutes and then go off and do something else right now and come back and it's done. So that's horseshit. Again, he didn't have food prep back in the day. So that's bullshit again, right? And then of course, the classic one, which we see on the forums and it drives me crazy. And I think even Steve would agree with this, is the guys that can't eat veggies. But that's because mommy and daddy didn't smack you upside the head and make you eat your veggies. And now you're asking about veggie powders and you can't do this. And you can't. Yes, you fucking can. So stop with the bullshit. Here's a guy, I'd even tell Pavel, man, go to a burger joint if there's nothing else and throw the bun away. Scrape the sauce off, just have the lettuce and the tomato and and, and the burgers if there's nothing else. But there are a million choices in the States, especially, and we've got the same things over here. We've got some amazing burger places over here, but it's a treat. You won't find me at McDonald's unless the fucking sky's falling down. Burger King, maybe. Let's go back to the training. So otherwise I'm going to be cussing you all out but not doing the right stuff. Trust me, those of you that are successful when it comes to food, sorry, in terms of your competition and your aspiration, will make the time, will find the right kind of foods. And those are, those will be the guys of you that do the best on your cycles and the win and place and look the roast ripped, whether you're modeling or doing competitions or doing an Instagram thing or whatever else. The ones of you that eat shit and want to know why you don't get the best results, look to your brothers, look to your sisters. The ones that do are the ones that are kicking ass. Let's, do, let's go back to the training. Right, so there's a couple of things here in the training, which I've touched upon one on the You don't need fancy equipment. He proved you don't need fancy equipment. And you guys can find decent physiques in those Brazilian and African videos. And some world-class athletes, as I said, with gymnastics, parkour, et cetera, and some of those Russian videos I mentioned earlier on. I know from really, really, going back in the history of the Iron Game, guys that were lifting rocks and tree trunks and train axles and all this kind of stuff. And they built physiques, certainly strength, that even now would be seriously, seriously considered strong and competitive, et cetera. As far as the training, and Steve touches on this in both the article, and I did the same with my pre-show research, in a previous podcast, which will be going live soon, the, both the same athletes, or the, both the athletes had the same thing, which is they don't do the same exercises or the same routine every time they hit the gym. Steve uses the example for biceps. It doesn't matter with his biceps or something else. And Pavel said the same thing. It essentially, was, he doesn't do the same thing for biceps every time. Now, as an older athlete who's still got a great physique, who's never really had any serious problems, both from, from, from his PD use or from his training in terms of injuries. Uh, tall muscles, dodgy joints, whatever else. Then that could be sub, part of that's down to genetics, but part of that's down to rotating exercises and not doing the same routine. But maybe doing six routines for biceps, but every time you do biceps, it's one of the six. It's not the same as it was last time. And that way, you're hitting the angles. You're not pounding on the joints. You're not smashing the, the, the connective tissue. You're giving your body a chance, or that kind of a chance to recover. And and, and it, it it helps. Keep you going the length of time that you're able to train, and in this case, right up until almost but not quite yet old age is 58. As we do this recording, it says here, trains every day and does that whether he's at home working out in the gym that he owns or traveling, doing whatever he tries to do, something gym wise, training wise, health wise, every single day. Now, I, Steve, and I. Again, we touched on this in previous podcasts and talk about ourselves as well. We don't train with weights every single day, but we try to do something every day that helps with our overall progress, whether that's going out and getting some steps, whether that's doing some stretching, whether that's doing some hot yoga for Steve, as well as the other stuff. So there's something that we're doing every day, and this is what Pavel's doing as well, that's keeping him fit, keeping him in shape, keeping him looking, as many of you might think, as a good older man. That that's pretty much useful. Something we Steve and I have touched on before. And in fact, I talked to Steve about this in the pre-show. I I I is the mental aspect of training. And I spoke to an athlete yesterday who does a time 10Ks on bikes, this kind of thing, 10 miles, and they're averaging 27 miles an hour, and they stay in this zone, it's like 90% of their max, for the whole time that they're riding the bike. And I was talking about the mental aspect. And Pavel says about being slightly narcissistic. There has to be something that drives you as an athlete. Now, whether that's your physical look, the narcissism, or whether it's an aspiration to be something different from everybody else, which is egotistical, of course, or just a mental drive to be successful in a chosen field, whether that's a great chess player, or, of course, we're dealing with here, as a great bodybuilder. And obviously, Pavel was able to succeed, being probably the best of his time, Czech bodybuilder and certainly a world-class athlete in terms of the top 20 in the world as we touched on already top top 16 for sure there needs to be something about you as a person that drives you to get to the gym at half past four in the morning and train on crap and scrap iron and whatever else and not go drinking with your buddies when you're as he was at the time in his teens and become a world-class athlete. Now, even if you guys don't have an aspiration to be a world-class athlete, you need to understand sometimes you can learn from guys like this. You can learn from a great chess player, a great pool player, a great snooker player. You can learn what they did to make themselves as good as they got at that thing. It might even be writing. It might be an actor. There might be something there that you can learn. Pavel, and this is what we try to do with this podcast. Pavel was saying what drove him, what made him do these things. Now, whether that's the family stuff, whether it's genetics, whether it's just a young man's thing, whether it's just wanting to kick people's ass, whether it's just wanting to stand on stage and have people cheer, it needs to be something about you. And it's really that's probably one of the things that I focus on more sometimes online and and in my own coaching uh, with with regards to the mental side of things than I do necessarily the information that's out there for you nutritionally or training or whatever else. I like to get the, you to do the best you can with what's available to you to get you to become the best you but i need to find out when i'm doing this stuff in fact i need to get you to find out what it is that drives you and here's where pavel said that his thing was saying for example that he was never voted by anybody except himself nobody was out there he had his own back he drove himself he wanted to be the guy that did these things so it's not mentioned and we know this from other athletes Family, he's not saying and uncles and dads who had great physiques were telling him to go out and do this stuff. He was doing it for himself. He wasn't doing it for his peer approval because otherwise he'd have gone out and have a drink with his buddies after work. He was doing this stuff, getting the way he got to, purely because he fucking damn well wanted to and had a solid-ass determination to it. Sometimes, and Steve, again, you, Steve, you work, you work with younger athletes. There must come a time where you say to yourself, how, how does this person stand out beyond the physical it has to be the mental and it's all there's almost an argument sometimes i believe where the person's a little tiny bit fucked up in the head and they kind of have to be whether it's being selfish or narcissistic or whatever in order for them to be above and beyond everybody else who's got the same kind of level of genetics you have to have something about yourself a drive or determination or certain mental aspect uh, even as a young athlete that takes you above and beyond your peers because there's a million distractions with the internet and and drinking and socializing and all those kind of things. But no, you decide not to do those things and carry on doing the
0: grind. Back to you. You have to love it for sure when you're young. And um, you can't have a situation because I worked as a high school coach and a judge as well. There's always those kids. They've got the helicopter parents. Mm. And those are the parents. They show up with them. They're always watching them, blah, blah, blah. They're on top of them. You can tell the parents are pushing them to do it yeah. and they don't really want to do it because their parents are pushing them to do it. It's not, so it's not them wanting to do it. So you could tell it's like, eh, they don't really want to be there type of situation. We see that all the time. I'm sure any profession that you guys work in, you've got coworkers who don't want to be there. But they're just there because they have no choice, but to be there, but they're miserable. So those are the people that don't get the most out of it. You've got to, you've got to have that love to do it because it's hard. There's bad days when it comes to weight training, I've gotten in my car to drive to the gym and I've been like, man, I just, I'm tired today. had a bad day. I don't feel like going, but when I get there, that switch turns on and that's always there for for me to tap into something that steve and i touched on in the pre-show and
1: i said i'd heard this particular phrase used and it seems appropriate and so again it's one of these things that guys i hope that a lot of you applies to if you're rich uncomfortable yeah you're just it's it's pretty much a given that you're never going to become a world-class athlete and i i don't mean you know you could have you know great food, living on a farm or wherever else, but there needs to be some sort of hunger. There needs to be something missing. And those guys that are sorted, and mummy and daddy got loads of money and they give them loads of money and they live in a luxurious house and, and you get given a Mercedes when you're 16, 17, 18. It's very rare for that person to become a world-class athlete, to, to, to do really, really well for themselves, even becomes perhaps rich later on themselves. There needs to be something there to drive them. So wherever it's coming from, for example, an Afro-Caribbean, Afro-American background and considering perhaps that you're poor and whatever else and your drives to succeed because you can box, because you can fight, because you can do MMA, basketball, pro ball, whatever else, the, 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 when we look at the rich side of stuff, when we look at the comfortable side, perhaps the only sports that spring to mind with something like polo or, or golf, Steve, and even then with golf, you'll you're seeing guys that have come from not necessarily great backgrounds, and end up doing really, really well. Even Tiger Woods, he was not rich as such, uh, bordering on maybe middle class, but still driven. And again, with his dad, and even then, I think he went above and beyond that. He got the fire for himself later on. So there's a there's a certain element here, and I think Pavel is a really, really good example of this, has proven to himself. And in fact, I'll touch on the latter part of it, which again you can look in the article for this guy's, where Steve says coming from Pavel, that when you're 50 years of age, the wheels typically fall off as a bodybuilder. And what he means by that is you just no longer find your body responding in quite the way that it used to when you were younger. And and weights and exercise could certainly give us an advantage over the guys that don't train, don't do any kind of exercise. And you can add at least 10 years to your peak physique, peak strength, peak athletic ability. But in terms of, for example, being a 50 plus bodybuilder, it would be things like loose skin that won't, won't tighten up anymore and age lines that show on stage and, and, and that much more difficult to get into condition. However, what he was able to do was realise that he had been really very lucky, obviously we're talking back that drive and that determination and dedication, still real, real lucky to have been on world-class stages at the Olympia, doing really, really well, and still now... As a 50 plus, and in his case, 58-year-old bodybuilder, still having a damn good physique for his age, still showing some of that stuff. And probably what like Steve and I are doing with you guys right now, being able to pass on the benefit of this experience to those people coming behind us. So those the, the, the phrase that stands out is the one we talk about, standing on the giants that went before us. So you become a giant if you like. And it's your duty, and this is the way that Pavel seems to have taken it. To pass on that information to give everybody else the benefit of what you've had to allow them to become the best that they can as well. Let's get into the steroid uses. Stephen. Talk about a, a, a 90s, early 2000s bodybuilder like Pavel would have taken back in the day.
0: So, Eastern Europeans, they're known to have easy access to steroids. Oh, so, yeah. wouldn't it have been hard for Pavel to use a lot of steroids and not have to pay <laughs> a lot for them? Uh, they're, yeah. they're out there. And um, so late 90s, early 2000, when he was peaking, let's kind of talk about what he may have used. So I'll give you four injectable steroids that guys in that era were kind of transitioning to and from. And one of the ones that he may not have used here is trembolone, although it is possible he did. So mm. at that time, I think more It was still a DECA thing. I think the East Europeans at the time were more, you know, behind their American and maybe British counterparts. So I think they're sticking more to DECA. And I think that they were running maybe 800 milligrams a week of DECA. A lot of respect for DECA um, because it did not aromatize. It does not cause estrogen and androgenic side effects. It's a great steroid. Very, very great steroid um, that they loved. And then also probably a little bit of testosterone in there. Masteron, 1,200 milligrams a week of Masteron. Masteron is a great hardener. And we, I mean, it's all but certain that he was taking a lot of Masteron. If you look at his pictures, he's got the hard chiseled muscles that you can grab. If you can grab something hard off of a person, you know, they're, that's rocks. Their muscles are like rocks. So I think Maserone for sure is something that he would have messed with. Another one, Premobolin, 1,000 milligrams of Premobolin, big steroid in the United States among American bodybuilders in the 70s and 80s. And I think the Eastern Europeans were a little behind, like I said, maybe 10, 20, 30 years even behind what Americans were doing. So I think that they definitely, he definitely would have messed around with Premobolin and messed around with it at a high dosage. Premobolin is a great steroid. For someone like him who wanted a chiseled physique, who didn't want the water retention, notice these four injectables, the only one that's going to give you water retention at any amount that's big is testosterone. And with the testosterone, he wasn't running very much, 400 milligrams, which is less than what a typical gym rat um, in the United States runs at a franchise gym. If you run into a, you know, go to a franchise gym, what are the guys using for are we running 500, 600 milligrams of testosterone a week. So he was using even less than that. So he depended on these other compounds the masteron, which is a hardener, the primobolan, which is a dry, it's a DHT derivative and the decadurobolin, which aromatizes about fourth or a fifth less than testosterone does. So decadurobolin is testosterone without the atom, the 19 atom. So, it's pretty much testosterone without the androgenic and estrogenic side effects that testosterone gives, gives you, as well as the DHT side effects as testosterone gives you. But he wasn't really worried about the androgenic or the DHT side effects. These guys were worried about the estrogenic side effects because if you go on stage with any sort of water retention or any type of boat blow, you're you're done for. So Mobster's going to kind of get into, what he could have ran as an oral, what he could have ran with the other compounds and why. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say, Steve, it's interesting. There was a couple of things that occurred to me. One was the accessibility in Eastern Europe. If you go back for the whole history of PED use, uh, and I'm thinking back all the way to Dr. John Ziegler, Ziegler, whatever his name was, uh, in terms of the uh, Russians using testosterone with their athletes. And obviously then you could talk about accessibility, et cetera, et cetera. So for example, Eastern Europe, Conversely, with regards to the anabolic steroid use in history really didn't have accessibility. And I'm thinking back to my my thoughts for that time over here in the UK uh, in terms of so trend was something that the the Americans were making for themselves with 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 the pellets that you you did in another uh, podcast just the other day. We were talking about that time and how they were getting hold of it. And it only becomes sort of more accessible a few years later. So the 90s guys were making this stuff out of the cow pellets themselves. The Russians, the Eastern Europeans, were not so. Accessibility was a bit different. Something else, which very quickly I'll touch on as well. I'm fascinated by the fact that there was always this kind of perverse thing in the uh, uh, European and British magazines, in the American magazines. There would be adverts in the back of those magazines. For example, in the American magazines, Eastern European secret steroid use, and you could buy a pamphlet, or some other guy would send you a letter the idea that being in Eastern Europe and the UK and, and on, on the other side of the Atlantic, we were doing something different that you needed to know about. And in the British and the European magazines, there'll be an advert telling you the secrets of the West Coast Americans. So it was always kind of slightly comical that because we were three, four, five thousand miles apart, we thought the other side had more secret stuff than we did. And in reality now, especially, we have accessibility to pretty much everything there is on both sides of the pond, and information of course with the internet is worldwide but that wasn't the case when Pavel was at his peak so it would have been that sort of stuff again there's also an argument with Pavel, and this is something we talked about when we talked about pd use of pros working with what you have but also working with your physique and again look at what steve said already in terms of those drugs and whether you would have a with retention not when you're looking at like your two to three percent body fat on stage. Not when your reputation was built on being ripped. So that's that's what we're looking at here. He could have used other drugs, but would they have had the same effect, or would they have worked with his physique? So I'll talk about or was it the same? For example, 100 milligrams a day of winstrol. Only potential issue is was looking out for, but you know, dryness of joints, etc. And again, I don't think that applies to Pavel because we've not really seen any great injuries or tweaks or anything like that he had. So these are the drugs that we would have think, we think would have worked well with his physique and based on the injury level, his condition on stage, and so on. Back in the day, and it seems almost comical now, and I say comical, it would be perfectly nice level. In fact, I'd prefer slightly less for your average Joe, but this would have been a tiny amount for a professional bodybuilder. And of course, nowadays you'd see 20, 30, even 40 minutes i use but back in the day for his physique six i use of growth perfectly i mean for that at that level steve and again with his conditioning and, and combined with the other drugs if his diet's on point he shouldn't get much water retention it's probably working with his physique so they might have been bodybuilders that or of his time that used a little bit more uh again i would prefer for the, our listeners two and a half i use a day three i use a day something of that level but for a professional bodybuilder that's looking to get in condition on stage, this is a great level of six eye user days. as I say, Novadex. Steve's mentioned before in other podcasts, Hardcore and the other ones that we do for Revolutionary, it was what was available at the time versus what we would have an athlete using now. So it's perfectly common for them, an athlete like PowerVault, to be using something like that at the time. DMP. Now, this is one of those drugs which we talked about before, we know it was around at the time, certainly late 90s, early 2000s. We don't like it. Evolutionary doesn't like it. Every single one of the guys that's done his podcast doesn't like it. It's a dangerous drug, it's a not horrible drug, but could he have used it? Could he have experimented with it? Sure. Uh, this is a guy that needs to want to place, like he said, he's driven by himself. I, I can see that he might have tried using something like this. I don't know necessarily with Pavel's physique, it was something that he was on long-term or using from contest to contest. But again, especially like I mentioned earlier on, with doing the tours and some of the Grand Prix, this might be something that he threw in there for short periods of time, got something out of, and maybe just added another 1% or 2% more polish to his physique. Uh, again, based on his fact that he's never had any injuries, he's not turned into a guy with out of shape, which quite often happens with guys that use used to EMP, they look amazing on it. It's the moment they come off. They actually go back to looking worse. I don't think that applies to Pavel, But that also might be a, a, a simple attributed down to the simple fact that he would have world-class genetics. Finally, diuretics. I'm going to say I would put money on him using diuretics. I would put $100 down saying he had something like this on his PD cycle, on his, on his list for sure. And, and the reason for that is quite simple. First off, we know guys that were getting tested and failed around that time. We know that it could become almost like a common use thing again. Uh, again, not necessarily dependent on the cycle because some cycles hold more water than others. And this is stuff that, go, that need to learn their competition prep better, taking drugs out before competition and so on. But again, it's one of those things that for, for, for Pavo, I think was a polisher because you're already talking about a world-class physique. You're already talking about a guy that looked pretty good and ripped all the damn time, but again, on these tours. So we know from other bodybuilders of the time that have discussed this themselves in person and talking with the gurus and the coaches at that time, I'm gonna say 100% there was some sort of diuretic in there. But with Pavel, I'm gonna say use it quite well because you're not talking about a guy that had a reputation of cramping up on stage. You're not talking about a guy that made a mess of it, done too much, had to go to hospital, looked watery one day, looked great the next, was great in the morning, was shit in the afternoon for the pre-show, So for the pre-judging and, and the night show. This isn't. This wasn't happening. So what he was using, if he was using it, Steve, was probably the bare minimum that was required. And that's probably exact, in fact, I'm not going to say probably, that's exactly what you're going to do. If you're going to do this kind of stuff, basically, number one, learn your shit. Number two, don't fuck it up. You just did a podcast the other day, Steve, when the, when uh, uh, the 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 guest discussed how uh, athletes would working with gurus who should know better, working with coaches who should know better. Take one diuretic, then they take another completely different diuretic, and then finally, because they haven't waited for the first two diuretics to kick in, they take a third diuretic, and they end up holding water, not losing water, cramping on stage, and some of them have had to go to hospital. So, what you do here, guys, is you, you lose you, you learn exactly the right process, you use the least amount possible, and you don't use it as a crutch to make up for a shitty physique or a crappy diet or one where he was doing too many refeeds or you were cheated or whatever else. And again, Steve and I, I think would agree on this. This is not the kind of physique Pavel has that he needed to do that. If he was dedicated from day one, if he was doing his food properly from day one, he strikes me as a kind of guy that was pretty much 99% of the way there when it comes to competition, and then just use the tiniest amount of directs to get that last little bit of detail out of his physique on stage. If the only argument perhaps on the tours is again, that some of these tours would have day to day, literally you're competing on a Friday, you're competing on a Saturday, you're competing on a Sunday, then you might have potential issues with directs. But if you're doing a competition a week for six, seven weeks because of the tour or every four or five days, I could see him throwing in a tiny bit of something like that just to add that polished state. What do you think?
0: One of the things, you know, obviously we're speculating on this. One of the things too, I wanted to kind of add to what you were saying mobster and add to that point was I think if you look at his steroid sale compared to the other guys we've done, you can tell he's run, he runs less less amounts. And I think that has a lot to do with just, the East European, I think if he had run, done that chemical warf- warfare thing, where he yeah. had run as much steroid as some of his peers, when he got 11th place at Mr. Olympia, I think if he had run trembolone, if he had run higher dosage of HGH, if he had run yeah. the insulin, if he had run more, 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 Yeah, I think he could have gotten a higher placing. But I think that it's just one of those things where he came from, you know, a poor country and he couldn't afford to run 15, 20 IEU's of HGH a day. He couldn't afford to run three, four grams of steroids. No big sponsors here. So, I mean, I think he had to stick to some, he couldn't run, you know, um, he had to stick thousand to a thousand milligrams thousand. of pre prim, alone was a lot of money for him. Masteron too is an expensive steroid, so he had to run Decadurobolin because it's a cheap steroid. He had to run Winstrol because it's a cheaper steroid. Anavar would have been too expensive. Lots of ACH would have been too expensive. I think he couldn't run a lot of Premabolin for a long period of time, so he had a, a financial disadvantage over his peers, and I think that that you know.
1: I'm going to agree 100% there, Steve, because I don't remember him having a particularly big sponsor at the time. In fact, I, can't, I couldn't tell you what sponsor he had. So he, doesn't, he certainly wasn't a muscle tech employed athlete. Uh, I think Steve is correct. I mean, the, the, the you and footwear. had he, for example, had access to trend, it's going to come from the US into Eastern Europe for him to get hold of it. I'm, I'm old enough to remember uh, Iranian-Pakistani uh, test infamy. And this was a real deal and the Russian stuff was a real deal and so on and so forth. But we won't get American drugs into the UK. And if we did, they were expensive. So that's that. And again, we're not talking about a guy that was at the higher end of the earnings. There was no Jay Cutler or or, or anybody else where he had 20 sponsors or whatever else. And if he did, we'd be talking about low levels of funds, whatever else. So we're not talking about a guy that was able to spend $10,000 on a cycle, that he had that kind of level of income from the sport and so on and so forth. And indeed. Even with the job that I believe he had back in the day, when we talk about aircraft mechanic, it's a question of he wouldn't have been earning the best amount of money that he possibly could because he was out competing. So in a way, it cost him money to compete. He was losing income competing, and he wouldn't have had the accessibility to the cheaper drugs or to these kind of mega cycles. And when Steve talks about chemical warfare, he's not joking. That's, this is a time period when it started. So whether it was a physical choice and saying, I'm not going to go crazy like these other guys, or whether, as Steve says, and I kind of agree, it was simply that he did not have thousands of dollars to spend on bigger amounts, greater amounts of drugs. And believe you and I, Steve touched on insulin again. It's not mentioned here purely and simply because it was just about coming into vogue in terms of usage. But again, we're looking at a physique. We're looking at the type of physique that was presented. So you can argue for sure, and I'm agreeing with Steve, about accessibility and affordability for Pavel to get hold of these drugs and use them. But equally, as I touched upon earlier on, there's an argument that supports the idea that he worked with the physique that he had. And you know we could roll a dice here, Steve, and say that if he had had greater accessibility to drugs, the harder drugs, the trend and the insulin, would he have had that rip physique? Would he have had been enough of a transformation to take him from, say, a 10th place to a sixth place to a third place. I don't know. I think we can look at the physiques that we see now, when there's a lot more HDH uh, use, a lot more insulin use, different accessibility for diuretics, different accessibility for AIs, and argue and perhaps I don't think it would have transformed his physique. I still can't see him being Mr. Olympia. And because the physiques now are arguably not as dry or as ripped. Or, or as ripped looking, perhaps as Pavel's got, it could well be whether a guru or coach of the time would have said to him, this is what's gonna work well with what you have Pavel, this is the physique that you have. So this, it's one of those six, one and half a dozen of the others. I think the mindset says of a professional bodybuilder, and Steve and I have touched upon this before, and he's done it in other podcasts as well, whereas, and again, the chemical warfare argument, pretty much the mindset says, I want to have accessibility to everything, I want affordability for everything. I want to see what my physique will do. And we've seen that, and we've touched on this in hardcore Podcast where we talked about the so-called death cycles. When you look at the death cycles, when you look at the crazy, crazy stuff that we got into in the most recent years where the guys have passed away, it's like, we're talking about here, one, two, three, four, five, five forms of testosterone, five anabolic steroids. Steve and I have done podcasts and he's done podcasts elsewhere for Evolutionary when we're talking about 10 or 12. And at some point, the amounts are negligible with some of those crazy cycles. Uh, and the condition you're doing these kind of crazy cycles, if you're on year-round, when we talk about cost of $40,000, dollars $60,000 or more per year versus, I can see Pavel, year-round, Steve, $10,000 max. Really, and again, based on the prices of the time and availability of the time, etc. So six times less in terms of cost now, when arguably steroids are cheaper than they've probably ever been on a dose-by-dose basis, and accessibility is great than they've ever been before. And again, working with the physique that you've got. Steve and I have different statures, for example. Steve's used trend, I have not. My, my, my bone structure should be bigger than Steve's. So what we would want individually as athletes even if we have accessibility identically would not necessarily be the same and I think that's one of the tricks that a good coach and even an athlete that knows himself quite well something we, we've touched on in this hardcore podcast if you guys decide to compete I don't like guys that change cycles completely different from one cycle to the next if the cycle you used worked then do the damn cycle again you don't need to go through every fucking steroid that's available to you you just don't what you could argue then of course is that you do experiment with some of these other drugs to see if they work better for you do that early days do that at the beginning do not be experimenting close to a competition so that you find out. oh i do really well on trend but i do really crap your deck up I hold on it or you know you, you're getting the better condition on each drug this other condition you wasn't everything else was the same but you didn't that's the only reason you should be doing that stuff once you find out what works for you what works with your physique with your structure the thickness of your skin assuming your diet and training are on point stick with those drugs seriously if you're going to do drugs stick with what works for you so for example and you touched on this a podcast you did the other day steve the idea and i've 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 talked about this for myself diana always gives me power because I bloat, the same as pretty much everybody else that you've done about, my leverage increases and it's and that water retention is great around my joints. So I'm able to bench more, I'm able to squat more. I'm able to do heavier back workouts, perhaps not so much on legs, it's a different thing, but for the rest of the stuff, it suits my physique. It suits me for what I want to do in a gym. Now, whether I look in great condition or be ripped on deep, I was a completely different argument. And this is where this stuff comes in. So sometimes we try to say this is a watery drug or a hardening drug or whatever else, but it can be very uh, physique-specific. And here's where I think Pavo had that advantage. He probably had a pretty good idea what worked for him, and we could say that that was the case because his condition through all of these competitions and right up to the end of his pro career was based on being dry and ripped. So what he did worked for him. And you guys, if you've got a similar physique, this is where you can learn from someone like Pavel and say, let's see if I can try what worked for Pavel would work for me? Maybe, but don't experiment in the last few weeks of a competition. Get all this stuff done early in your, your PD use, do, do, do a mock competition cycle, find out what works for you, tweak the amounts, and remember, like I said already, you've probably got greater accessibility to PDs than anybody of any time in history to date. You really have the sponsors that we've got and whatever else the 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 drugs that you 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 could argue about the prices but i think you've probably got better accessibility to a greater range of drugs at a better sort of price based on the economics of now than you've probably had throughout the whole of history up to date short of living next to a pharmaceutical plant and the guys throwing the drugs over the wall to you and you're catching them and using them you've probably got the, the best advantages you've ever had if you want to, want to use anabolic steroids, if you want to do gold PEDs, then you have for, for history. And of course, check out our sponsor's sales
0: for that. When they do the discount, you've got an even greater advantage. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, definitely check it out, guys. So, I mean, we do this, you know, it's fun to kind of speculate on the steroid stack, but come on the mm-hmm. forum. And, yeah. you know, if you agree with us, if you disagree, if you heard something, those of you from East Europe, we'd love to have you. Um, anywhere in the world, we'd love to have you on a forum. We're a worldwide forum and we welcome everybody from all different countries and languages. So come on in and join the forum. Australia,
1: we'd we'd love to... Yeah, I can say right now, Steve, we've got 10 or 12 countries on on most of our forums right now. And and occasionally we get them from China, Japan, India, Pakistan, Eastern Europe, uh, Germany, uh, Scandinavia, And that's on a regular basis, guys.
0: Absolutely. So great show, Uh, Mobster. You want to give a sneak peek of your countrymen that we're going to be doing next and then take us into the disclaimer.
1: If I said the the, the, the initials, it's probably a giveaway, Steve. So I'm going to say JD and leave that. Uh, uh, A very good British bodybuilder of his time. So you guys, it's dead easy. I've given you enough clues. You can Google and work out the name. As always, I'm going, to, I'm going to lead us into the disclaimer, Steve. Please note, we are not bodybuilders, not doctors. And the opinions we give are hours and hours alone. Our view is based on our experience and views on the topic. Our podcast for informational purposes and entertainment only. The freedom of speech and the First Amendment replies. Thank you very much.